Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. Today we're going to talk about defining your competition. This is going to be fascinating, I think, because I have tons of angles on this. Um, but Rochelle, is your idea. So I'm wondering what, what was the original inspiration for this idea? And maybe we can come into it from that direction. The inspiration for this kind of came around a couple of different conversations I've had recently. And when you do brand work, it doesn't matter who you do brand work for or what product or what, what service line you do it for. You look at quote unquote competition. And I feel like that's a trigger word for people. It might be a trigger word for you, Jonathan. And so I've had people say things like, well, I don't have competition. And I find that to be a dangerous mindset in the sense of you need to know how to position yourself against others in the category. But I also get that feeling. You don't want to think about others as competition. So I use the phrase brand neighborhood when I do one-on-one work because it allows people to think about competition in a different way. The reason I wanted to talk about this is I think it's important for Uh, authorities and authorities in in development to really understand who around you you should pay attention to. I like that framing of brand neighborhood because I'm one of those people that if you said who's your competition I would say there isn't any like no one if somebody would rather go with Blarens than me then they're not for me anyway it's like it's a bad fit because there's so much personality involved that's like critical but at the same time, we're definitely in the brand neighborhood. People like Chris Doe, Blair Enns, David C. Baker, we're all in the same area. Like it's sort of, you know, David Fields, Philip Morgan, we're all in the same sort of, someone might consider any one of us when they're in a given situation. The thing that I work with people on is less about defining their competition and thinking more about what are the alternatives to hiring you. And it could include competitors, but it also could include doing nothing or it could include solving the problem in a different way. For example, an alternative to working with me would be perhaps hiring a a full-time salesperson because that will solve a lot of the same problems that you'd solve by working with me, but in a very different way. So I I consider that an alternative. So if I was going to uh, work on someone's laser focused positioning statement, which uh, the sort of template for that, the Mad Libs template for that is I'm a discipline who helps target market with expensive problem. Unlike the alternatives, I unique difference. And I find a lot of people that I work with have a really hard time with the unique difference. They just make stuff up. And, you know, they're just like, um, I've got 20 years of experience. I'm like, no, you know, is that unique to you? Or they'll say like, I use these tools instead of these other tools. I'm like, is that unique to you? No. And the, the reason why they're not able to come up with something unique, they're completely stumped is how they're different from the alternatives or the competition, if you will, is because they don't know what the alternatives are or who the competition is or what other things prospective clients would be considering. So of course they don't know what's different about them because they don't know what they're comparing themselves to. So I I 100% agree that it's a great idea to understand your space. Uh, The brand neighborhood's perfect. I I think that's perfect because it it frames it in a way that's non-threatening. Once you can fill in a few blanks in there, you look, well, how are you different from these other options? It's not a question of coming up with some hyperbolic marketing BS. It's like how I can tell you like right now how I'm different from Blair Enns or David C. Baker or David A. Fields or, you know, Philip Morgan. Like I can tell you exactly. And that's why I don't see them as competition. 
Because I would send you to Blair. If you were a better fit for Blair, I'd be like, go talk to Blair. Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the things that happened recently is I had a, a new client tell me that he'd talked to one of my quote-unquote competitors, and, and he told me who it was. And I, I sort of chuckled without really thinking. And he said, what's the chuckle about? And I said, oh, actually, I said, people that choose him don't choose me. So I'm, I think it's great you're going to talk to him. And if he's the right fit for you, you should go with him. But I, I've been told we're very different. But I don't really know. I've never spoken to him. So after all this happened, the client decided to work with me. But this quote unquote competitor reached out to me. And said, I think we should talk to each other. And so we did. And it was fascinating because we really are different. And not in bad ways. I mean, we're just different. And he's a guy. I'm not. His style is uh, is a little bit more formal. It's more suited to a certain kind of professional. And he was so open about sharing that it made me feel open about sharing. And when we were done, I had so much really interesting information that it made me think, you know what, sometimes we just need to talk to the people who we think are our competitors. Now, here's the thing. So the, the, the idea of this episode is defining your competition. I don't think we've explicitly said why we think that's important. I think we started to kind of imply it. Ah, okay. So I think it's important because it has to do with positioning. The biggest thing that, that you do as a professional and as an authority, a budding authority or an actual authority, um, is that you have to position yourself relative to the other choices or the other alternatives as you described it, Jonathan. You have to find that niche. Uh, well, let, let me not call it a niche. Let me call it white space. You want to find that space that nobody else is in. And so if if you're looking at a universe of five or six noted authorities on pricing, right? You're going to be in there, but each one of you has, has a different space. Like Blair really focuses on, on creative agencies and there may be other differences, but just off the top of my head, that feels like the difference. So you want to understand what's there so that you position yourself in that white space. You don't want to be in the same space as Blair. Blair doesn't want to be in the same space as you. So it's finding that that unique place. And until you know what else is out there, how can you find white space? It's kind of like building a, a kind of empathy with your potential clients because they're aware of the other the things that they're considering. So if you're not aware of it, it's hard for you to help them through the decision-making process. So if you're truly, genuinely looking for folks with whom you'll be the best fit, of course, you're not going to be the best fit with everyone. And when someone comes along who's kind of throwing off some bad fit red flags, but you feel like, oh, well, this might be a good fit for Philip or Blair or David or, or or Rochelle or whoever. It's like, it's like send them that way. You know, that's I'm a I'm a big karma person. I think that comes back. If I had in the situation you were in where someone's actually I'm in this situation right now. Someone's like, oh, I'm considering you and someone else for private coaching. I'm kind of like, OK, he didn't tell me who the other person was or what the other alternative was. I don't know if it's another person, but basically this person has some money to invest in their business. And I'm like, okay, well, what can I tell you? Like, I, you know, here's a very detailed page with all the fine print, all the big picture and all the fine print. Let me know if you have any questions. I don't want to take somebody on that's, that really should be with someone else because it's not going to go well. And that, you know, it gives me a little bit of money, but what I really want is the customer satisfaction that brings with it referrals and testimonials and, and all of that sort of business building stuff and not some short-term thinking like, oh, great, I got a few thousand dollars from somebody. 
Like, you want a high-performing client. Right. I want a success story. Yeah. 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 I want a huge success story with every single person. So the way that you can kind of increase the odds of that happening is being really choosy who you work with. I felt a little bit awkward or uncomfortable asking over email who or what the other the person was considering as the alternative because I felt like it could it was too easy for it to come across as like defensive or sour grapesy or yeah how could you work with them instead of me like the only thing I could say that would seem credible would be like yeah go work with that person instead it would be hard to be like no I know that other person and you should really work with me like it's it's not credible So I kind of well, left like, what, but that other one sounded a little sour grapesy too, you know, yeah, oh, I, go, go work with them. Right. Right. I'm not the right fit for you. Go work for them. Well, almost. I mean, this person was asking so many questions. That was a red flag in itself. It's uh, like, I was like, okay. uh, are you sure you're really ready for this? Yeah. The situation I had recently, he just volunteered the name. And I don't know that I would have asked the name. Sometimes I've done is I've said, well, tell me what other alternatives you're considering. What do they look like? And they might say, well, you know, I thought about taking a course, a course on such and such by so and so. I've thought about just waiting a year uh, because I'm not sure if now is exactly the right time. And so then if I ask questions that they'll tell me more and that will help me to help them because One of the things you started to say, or that you started saying at the beginning of this, Jonathan, was you talked about when you look at it from through the eyes of your client as to what their alternatives are. I love that because it's empathy. And the more that we look at things through the eyes of our potential clients, one, the more we're going to be able to help them. Two, the better we're going to be able to use language and examples that really suit them. And I think three, I, I just think... Empathy is always a good way to come at this versus I'm the expert. I know everything. No one is as good as I am because the, the latter is, is never true. Right? <laughs> There's always somebody, and I put better in quotes because it's all through the eyes of the client and who's better. Yeah, better is a dangerous word. Yeah. Like, right. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of flip this around to the other end of the spectrum. Folks, if you're listening and you're like, oh, I have tons of competition, like I know exactly who my competition is. I'm losing, I'm losing jobs to this other agency or this other developer or this other uh, dev shop all the time, or you're all speaking at the same conferences or you're all like whatever the thing is, it's probably the case that you are seen as a commodity still to your buyers. So the people that you're attracting for whatever reason, see you as more or less interchangeable with the people that you would consider to be your competition, which is why I don't feel like I have real competition. It's more like, well, we already went over. It's like, it's like you're either a good fit for me or you're not. And if you're a good fit for somebody else, then you're probably not a good fit for me because I am different enough from everybody else in a, in a way that I find is meaningful for the people who end up working with me. If you're presented maybe on a partner partner portal on some platform website like Shopify or FileMaker or Salesforce, and you're presented as a commodity in those situations where there's this long list and what do you get? You get a little logo, you get your name, you get some probably, you know, mumbo jumbo about your biz and then either a star rating. And this happens at, you know, like partner portals, there are different tiers of like of how much money you pay them basically. And on Upwork, there's star ratings and there's a probably not in a partner situation like with, you know, Salesforce, they're not going to be prices there, but on Upwork, there sure are. So 
you're presented in this, oh, it's almost like going to the app store and you've got all these apps, like, oh, productivity apps. And like, here's a giant list of productivity apps. And you don't have a lot to base your decision on other than the price, the star rating, and like how pretty the logo is or the, the icon is. It's very easy to appear undifferentiated from the masses if that is how your customers are finding you. If they're finding you in a marketplace, it's probably not great because you're saying like, yeah, I'm one of many. I'm part of the crowd. There's nothing obvious that makes me stand out here. The thing that would make you stand out more would be if they found you in some other place where you weren't surrounded by things that they couldn't meaningfully uh, differentiate from you. So what I was thinking as you were talking about this is sort of the difference between being an authority, like an authority on pricing, right, versus the authority. So that might be, you know, the authority on pricing for, you know, fill in the blank, software developers, creative agencies. And and so it's a lot of this is how you define yourself relative to others. And you can't really do that in a place like Upwork. I mean, all they have is your face and and some ratings. Like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to have my face in the rogues gallery. That's a big reason why I don't even sell my books on Amazon. It's like a similar thing. Like, no. And that might be a bad idea for some reasons, but I think for other, that, but that is the reason why I don't. One thing I just want to pick up on what you said was the difference between being an authority and the authority. And then I was like, there's no such thing in my mind. I'm like, there's no such thing as the authority. And then you went on to answer my, you have obviously have long distance ESP because I was like, you can be the authority for somebody there's very, very rare situations where you're anybody is the global authority on some, it happens of course, but it's pretty rare that someone is like the global authority on a particular thing. And congratulations if you are that because you can write your own ticket, but 99.69s of people are not going to be that. And it's a very rare situation. So you're always going to be in a smaller pond. So like if you think of the global authority, that is the biggest possible pond. So you need to be a gigantic fish in that pond reputation wise to actually command that positioning or, or own that position. So the way it's worked for me over the years and it works for students of mine is you can be a big fish. If you pick a smaller pond, like you same size fish, just jump in a smaller pond. And you'll be like, wow, especially if you're a soloist, you don't need that many clients to have, make a bang in living. But if you just try to be every, everything to everyone, which is swimming in the, the global ocean, you need to be really like, you know, Olympic athlete level amazing at whatever it is that you do in a way that clients will recognize, not your colleagues will recognize, but in a way that's meaningful to your buyers. Bingo. Bingo, it's not your colleagues. <laughs> we don't matter. It's your clients and how they see you that matters. And so kind of going back to our original topic, this is why knowing your competition is so important because you need to know what the alternative choices are for anybody who, I'm going to use this word, consumes you because the consuming could be just reading your blog posts. It could be buying your book. It could be hiring you to coach or to consult on something. But it all starts that that they connect with you over what you believe, what you share, you know, your big idea. Let's say you do SEO, 
right? Let's just pick something that's totally commoditized, like it, at one level. You know, the bottom end of the spectrum is completely commoditized skill. What is it? Moz.com. If you, if you build up a relationship with people who understand th- subtle things about you, about your personality, about your ethics, about your approach, you're no longer in competition with people who they don't know. They know you, they trust you in a, to a certain degree more than they're going to trust some random entry on an Upwork search result, sort ascending by price, lowest to the top. Like the clients who are doing that aren't your clients anyway. So you can forget it. You don't even need to, like if they're looking there, you probably don't want them. You could have, that is the first item on your questionnaire. <laughs> Hmm. Have you looked for people like me on? Well, this is why I get into it in the why conversation when I'm doing a sales interview. I sort of culminate the interview by saying, you know, why would you hire someone expensive like me? Why not just go to Upwork? There's probably, you know, I could search right now. There's probably 12 people who supposedly do what I do. And if the client was like, oh, I didn't think of that, then I know, (laughs) right? Then I know there's no reason for me to write a proposal because they're going to absolutely flip out when they see the price. If they say no, and I'm like, why not? Or they don't, or they're just automatically share why not? To be like, ah, oh, no, we we want the go. You're the go to person. Like you wrote the book on this, and I'm like, well, why does that matter? Like, what result are you, you know? And then they're gonna tell me all the reasons why. Uh, it actually come to think of it, this is probably how I got a lot of my positioning information and and understood how I lined up against the air quotes competition because I have this conversation with people when they're considering working with me. So I'll know, like I know, and I'm like, okay, the reasons that you are thinking about working with me, I believe are true. That is the, the, it is true about me and it is the, the, these things that I try to project. So cool. My marketing's working. So you already knew these things that were different about me from wherever path you, however you found me, whether it was my book or my mailing list or whatever. And clearly those things that I'm, that I'm putting out there are meaningful to people for whom I would be a good fit. So I'm like, oh, cool. It's like working. I never really explicitly thought about it like that, but that those sales interviews really are beneficial from, from this exact standpoint, because I try to talk them into going with someone cheaper and they'll tell me why they don't want to. So great. Sales calls are always a good source of all kinds of information And I'm usually pretty in tune with what's going to happen at the end of a sales call, what's going to happen next. Every once in a while, someone will surprise me. In fact, I had one a couple of weeks ago who I was convinced I would hear from in six months, if at all. And it was a two-day wait. And I got a bunch of emails, just like little clarifying questions. And then boom, I was hired. And it was like, really? I didn't see this one coming. You learn that from the from the conversations because they'll tell you what their experience has been. And sometimes, I don't know if this has happened to you, Jonathan, somebody comes to me just because of one little thing that they saw somewhere. It, and it, it could be as simple as a tweet. And they said, oh, well, that, that thing that you said on Twitter, and of course, I'm looking it up as we're talking, like, what thing did I say on Twitter? <laughs> That's me. That's my situation. So I went and looked at your website, and I thought, oh, I didn't even know I needed this. So I want to talk to you. Do I need this? I mean, that's basically how the conversation opens. And so then we have a 45-minute or an hour discussion about their situation. But during that that call, you can get so much information 
on, again, air quotes, your competition. You want to find out, like, are they even looking for you when they find you? Or is it, do they just not even know that they needed that? Like, Jonathan, does somebody know that they need pricing help? And they just go, oh, "Oh, let me go find a pricing consultant. Or do they say, yeah, yeah, oh, my business isn't growing the way that I want it to. Exactly. I'm working harder than ever. feels like I'm making less money. Exactly. And those are the things that we hear on those sales calls that if we pay attention to, we can build into into the website. Wasn't it you, Jonathan, that said you had somebody come to you and say, say, oh my God, look at this guy's website. That problem he said, that's exactly us. That's our situation. Yeah, I get that a lot. I, yeah. There's one particular story I, I, you're probably thinking of where the guy, he said, I was laughing so, like you, boy, do you have our number? I was laughing so hard reading your page. I sent it to my boss and we were having like a good laugh. Like, wow, he nailed it. Yeah. Right. I guess it does have to do with like, being differentiated from your competition so strongly. Like I picked software developers to speak to and I end up working with other people, but all of my marketing is for software developers. So when they come to my site, it's almost like I'm reaching into their brain and pulling out private thoughts and putting them on the page and it makes them gasp. So if you went to my page and you read it, like my website's wicked ugly. It's just like black text on a white background and it's like bullet points. And you might think, a common headline for me is like, does this sound familiar? And there'll be like a bullet point list of like six or eight things. If you're not a good fit for me, you might be like this. These are dumb. This website's terrible. I don't understand. Like, how does, how does this guy even make a living? But for the right person, their head explodes when they read that. Would I be able to do that? If, if I was more broadly focused, maybe I could see myself getting there someday, but I don't really need to. So, you know, like blur myself up, like fish jump into the next bigger pond type of thing. The other people who are in my brand neighborhood, I love that, they do not have those bullet points on their websites. They don't. They're, they're either speaking more broadly or to a completely different audience. So if somebody whose mind is going to be blown by my coaching page goes to literally anybody else's site, it's not going to be, they're not going to have the same mind blow experience. Yeah, your, your site now, I didn't feel this way when you had the credit union site, but your site now is you. It's like, I, we don't need any of this artifice. We don't need a lot of fancy colors. We don't need all that stuff. It's boom, 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 boom. And you either respond to that or you don't. It, it wouldn't work for everybody, but that's the point. It doesn't have right. to. It just has <laughs> to work for you and your audience. You know, if you had somebody else with the exact same site, I'd worry that it wasn't right for them. It gets back to knowing where you, where you fit, like what's unique about you, knowing who your audience is, knowing how to connect with them. I guess this is kind of how it ties in. Like if you do that deeply enough, you don't have competition really. You do have people in your brand neighborhood. You do have other alternatives that people might consider of, of, like you said, taking a course, or like I said, hiring a, you know, a full-time salesperson or, or doing nothing, of course. That's the, always the, the easiest choice. To me, I, I never feel competitive against other people. I'm, I'm more like competitive against, if anything, it's against the status quo or really the main thing I feel competitive against is the idea, the sort of de facto hallucination that trading time for money is a the only way or the best way to charge for services that is horrifying. So I'm in competition against that. So you define your competition. It comes back to your big idea. Yes, I think so. Yeah. But I think the other thing you said that, that I want to really have people pay attention to is you said, if you look at, at 
all these things deeply enough. And one of the things I think is hard for people to do is you have to look at yourself deeply enough too. So, I mean, obviously we're talking about the competition, but then we're also talking about the competition or brand neighborhood relative to you. And so you've got to get really clear on your special sauce. What is it that, that you love to do? But, and it's not, I'm not talking about that's how you pick your specialty, but it's that what is it that you do so remarkably? And a lot of times it's something that you don't even think is that special because it's so native to who you are. And it might be how you strip away all the artifice and get right down to the idea. It might be how you make people feel when you have a, a call or an interchange with them. It's typically going to be something that is based on emotion. In other words, how people experience you, their emotion, not yours. You have to find that too, because that's the other way that you get yourself out of that rogues gallery of options. Yeah, I, I try to get people talking about that on, when I'm interviewing them by asking what their superpower is. I don't think it's exactly the same thing, but it's, it spawns that kind of a conversation where this thing that's just, it's just natural for them, it doesn't feel hard, it feels easy. And I'm like, good, we want something easy. We don't, a lot of people conflate really hard work with, like the harder the work is, the more valuable it will be. That's the complete opposite way that you should think about it. It's like charge more for the easy stuff. Anyway, the, the point being is like, yeah, <laughs> it's it's true. slippery slope of me talking about a different topic, but, but the idea is what's your superpower. And that's the thing that, that it could be, could be the thing that sets you apart from your air quotes competition. The guy that I talked to that is my quote unquote competition, what was fascinating is that he wasn't what I expected him to be like in terms of talking to him. I'm going to use the term energy for one of a better word. His energy was very different. His sight was very formal. I wouldn't say it was stilted, but it was very formal. And when I talked to him, it was the opposite. And he was high energy. He talked really fast. The thing that struck me was I really liked him better in person than I liked his website. And I got a different impression of him. I would argue that's not good. You know, when you talk to somebody who's a soloist or who runs their company, that site should feel like them. You shouldn't have a disconnect, even a positive disconnect, right? I mean, sounds to like me, you need a branding expert. Well, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was laughing, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's so hard to do it for yourself, but uh, it was uh, right. it was kind of a chuckle. I think Ramona Russell is one of the first, if not the first, person we interviewed on this show, and I constantly come back to um, I think about that interview a lot because <laughs> you because love Ramona she's like just puts it all out there yep the f-bombs and the dog and the you know and the, the, feet. And the mission and the yeah every yeah the feet and the hair and like I'm not gonna wash my hair it's like okay of course that's not going to be for everybody but I think we've established already that that's good if somebody's thinking about hiring Ramona first of all they're probably not thinking about it they probably just do it like this, this is the one they're not considering someone else because her personality is so large and so out there. When I say out there, I don't mean like weird. I mean, it's like, it's so, so well represented on her website that there's no mistaking it. And like, I, cause I agree with you. Like you don't want to jump on the phone with someone and all of a sudden be like, Oh, this isn't what I was expecting at all. Like that's how you end up with terrible leads. If you get repeatedly are getting people that are like, uh, treat you as a commodity or they're just like real, real cheapskate price buyers or uh, hard negotiators or they uh, see you as a cost and not a value. And it's like, 
or an investment. I mean, if you're attracting people, that's great. But if you're attracting the wrong ones, that's, that's not great. So those things being in alignment comes back to your, you know, your, your point about being self-aware to know you, you do need to be self-aware enough to see where you fit in this brand neighborhood where all these other people kind of around you, what the white space is, how do you fit into that? And then reflecting that in a genuine and authentic way in whatever your marketing materials are, whether it's a YouTube channel, or your website or your business cards. Well, and one of the reasons Ramona's approach is so successful is because she cares so deeply about her clients. So it doesn't come from a place of ego. It comes from a place of, hey, this is who I am. Love me or don't hire me. But yeah, the rest point. the rest of her is all about, uh, and I've seen her in action, is all about really getting into the heads of her clients and figuring out from a PR perspective how to make them successful. I mean, she's really, really good. And she lets it all hang out. Not for everybody, but it's very powerful. It's funny because as much as she talks about herself on her website, it doesn't feel self-absorbed. It is in service of the client in some way. It's like, I, I need you to know that I'm like this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like a don't waste my time if we're not a good fit. And she's also switching her, her, uh, her niche. So I haven't looked at the site in a little while. It may look a little different than what it looked like the last time we've both looked at it. It's powerful. And the fact that she's still on your mind, I think she was the second interview we did, but the fact that it's still on your mind, 70 something episodes later, it, it tells you something. Yeah. Major impact. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. you're right. Mar Marilyn was probably the first interview. Madeline. Madeline. Star. Madeline. Madeline. Yeah. Star, sorry. Madeline. Sorry, Madeline. So, all right. So maybe we could, in the few minutes we have left, kind of get a little tactical advicey about steps people could take to start to answer some of these questions? Sure, sure. So uh, first tactical thing, I mean, research, right? Research. And it's as simple as start with, start with a Google search. I mean, this sounds so ridiculously lame, but people don't do this. You probably have some keywords that work for your area of expertise, Maybe geography, although I'd encourage you not to limit yourself to geography at all. That's uh, it's really self-limiting. And then start to start to try some weird things like in Twitter. Twitter's a great place for this because Twitter, like everybody's on Twitter, right? So do some keywords in there. So if you want to know who's doing what on content strategy, try searching in Twitter, search for conversations, follow the thread, click on people that are looking at that. Don't just do kind of the traditional, oh, these are the people that my clients have told me about, which by the way is important, but also go out and see what else is out there because you don't know what what you don't know. I can jump off point uh, with Twitter is if you do know someone who is very well known in your space, in your brand neighborhood, if you will, like someone who's who's like maybe a level or two above you and that your clients probably couldn't afford anyway, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's a, a sort of hidden feature on Twitter that's super useful, which is Twitter lists. So users can make lists of people and then follow the list. So if you let, let's just pick Seth Godin as someone who's kind of a, you know, luminary. So if I went and looked to see, okay, what lists is Seth Godin on? Like, who has he been added to? Uh, sorry, what list has he been added to by some people? And then who else is on that list? So if you feel like you're kind of like a marketer and you kind of agree with his, whatever, you're kind of in his space, 
then you could go pick him or you probably know people who are a few, few levels down from that or just a variety of people. Find what list they're on on Twitter and follow those lists. Check out the other the other folks on that list. Not to certainly not to copy what they're doing. It's just to understand what they're doing and look for that white space where like you have that moment where you say, oh, that's interesting. I would never do that. Like that thing that they offer. That's not my thing at all. So let's just say someone came along and was like, well, I should hire you over a you over this other person. You'd be like, well, that person is targets a different kind of audience. Like if that's what you want, then you should hire that person. Uh, if you're looking for someone that does that particular thing, tell them I sent you. Another thing I have people do is once they have an idea of who their buyer is, if the, if you have an idea who your buyer is, then I would say find out what conferences your buyers go to and spider those websites. Go all through those websites. Find out who the other speakers are. Look for any talks that are kind of like a talk that you might have given and be like, okay, that speaker's kind of in my neighborhood because they're talking about, you know, let's say pricing services. So if I if I saw some conference where where software developers were going for business advice and there was someone there talking about pricing your services or sales or marketing or negotiation or controlling scope creep or any of these things that I talk about, I would take note of that and be like, okay, these people vetted by the conference organizers were chosen to speak about a topic that's in my area. So interesting. So, and again, I don't see these as competitors because I know they're not just like me because who is, so I would go and I would start connecting with them. I'd follow them on Twitter. I might send them a DM. I might say, Hey, I saw the video of that talk. That was amazing. What do you think about this? Or who could I share it with? Or what do you, who are you looking to connect with for clients? All these sorts of things, start connecting and networking with these people. But then, then a whole bunch of things follow on from there. JVs and like shared posts, guesting on podcasts, all these things. Well, and I just want to make a side note because we we did an earlier episode on brand neighborhood, but one of the reasons why the brand neighborhood concept is important is it's not just your classic competitors. So again, using Jonathan as an example, it's not just the five or six guys that are talking about pricing. It might be, uh, Seth Godin might be in there. And by that, all I mean is you might say, you know what, I really admire what he's doing in marketing, and there's some elements of his brand that I really like for me. And that doesn't mean copying, but it means how you position yourself on a particular topic. So you might say, well, I'm, I'm in your head, you might say, I'm a little bit of the Seth Godin of the pricing world. I'm not saying you would say that, Jonathan. I'm just saying you might, it's, it's another way to think about it so that as you decide how you're going to put yourself out in the marketplace, you absorb the things that you admire about other people that are also in you. It's not copying. It's they, they help you to see what's already in you and to bring it out a little bit. Yeah, that's a great example. Like Seth's whole thing about empathy and empathizing with the people who you seek to serve, as he puts it, is that hugely clicked with me. But in it, but I wasn't copying it. It mapped to something I was already doing, but I didn't have the words for it. And I was like, oh, that's a great way to put it. Michael Port, I had a similar, similar sort of epiphany uh, when I read Michael Port's book because he was all about service. And I was used to the kind of Alan Weiss school where, you know, he he's like, consultant as dominatrix and it never, (laughs) never felt like a good fit for me. And so reading like Seth Godin and Michael Port was, it emphasized the service aspect. And I never, ever thought about it until I'd read um, some of their, both of those two, their, their books. And I was like, Oh, that, that clicks with me 
it put a name to this sort of behavior that was spread out over time that I didn't really didn't really see there was a disconnect until I saw somebody articulated in a, a particular way. And I was like, Oh, ah, cool. That's I, that totally tracks yes. for me. Yeah. In fact, uh, our guest next week will be somebody who's inspired that for me, Charles Green and oh, his yeah, work with David Maester on the trusted advisor. Trusted advisor. Yeah, yeah. Trust in the advisory professions. I'm really excited about that. That's one of the best books out there. I mean, mm-hmm. all time classic. Yes, absolutely. Cool. So maybe we should wrap there with that teaser. Yeah. Well, well done. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's almost like we know what we're doing. <laughs> or we're in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye bye.